0: Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 7 Growing Horizontally The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tail and the Tongue This series of new episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, swelling in them, always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. Growing horizontally, the seventh episode follows a conversation with graphic designer Katharina Hetzeneder. Her relationship with design began at the age of 17, thanks to an internship in a graphic design studio in Vienna. However, it was not until years later in Barcelona that she studied graphic design at the university. As the social and economic crisis deepened in 2008, Katarina began to question more strongly the contribution of graphic design to social and political change and relocated to London to obtain an MA in design writing criticism. It was then that she wrote her thesis on Hacking as Critical in Collective Practice in Design. Inspired by the Spanish protests of the 15M movement in 2011, she would return to Barcelona to continue and expand her relationship with different cultural scenes in the city. Design, art, music, activism, and diverse community experiences in collective projects are integral to Katharina Hetzeneder's way of working and being. I knew Katharina from working together. She was a founding member and part of the graphic design collective ODD. Our closeness didn't just come from working together but also from belonging to related scenes and having common friends and world-making desires. Since then, we have been in a conversation that is as consistent as it is intermittent. When I encounter other graphic designers, I realize how influenced I am by the way people like Katharina Hetzeneder work. For her, it is essential to know the project she's involved in from the very beginning. Even though we discussed during this conversation that it is very difficult to fix the beginning and the end of things, she always remarks how important it is to really feel part of a project. She also points out how exciting it is to be part of the moment when an idea begins to take shape, full of desire but with no clear purpose yet. We both agree that it is very important to work with people and content that share common ethics with us. Personally, I'm very grateful to designers like her for never making me feel like a client, but for taking a real interest in the content and internal processes of artists and curators. We live in a time that lacks time. Shared attention and curiosity are part of a life attitude that is not always easy to maintain with everyone. To script our conversation, Katerina shared impressions, memories, desires, and life experiences with me by email. It was in writing that she began to organize things that we talked about many times, but without a scaffolding for shared words and worlds. She highlighted the difference between working collectively and working with collectives, the work on and with archives, the importance and habit of writing in her processes, the personal archive of clouds that she has been building for years, the interest in scenes as an interest in the people who form part of them, the omnipresent but ephemeral character of graphic design in the digital age. Although graphic design was a compass during our conversation, we decided to start talking from the intimacy of our childhood and family backgrounds talking about the notion of home and the influence of the rural in our lives and relationships with and in urban environments. The rural world is a reality that we both know firsthand and that we also recognize in each other and in other people. This conversation with Katharina hetzeneder took place on the 30th of December 2021. She was in Berlin, having just returned from spending a few days at her hometown Lambrechten in Austria. I was in Barcelona, having also just returned from the small town where I grew up in Galicia. For many people the year ends by returning to the past, just before we start to flirt with expectations and promises from the near future. It happens every year, a strange and familiar feeling of both temporal circularity and linearity at the same time. Growing and moving horizontally is an idea that Katharina shared during our more than three-hour encounter, recalling Nicolas Bourriot's notion of the radicant. Roots are not a place, but trajectories or pathways. Both people and languages are home, Katharina would also say. After editing it, I feel that this podcast is both a spell for ending and beginning another year. It is sustained by a desire for conversation between people but also within collective events larger than our individualities.
1: a lot about where i feel at home and since you ask about (laughs) coming home for christmas it's something i actually do every year i'm not religious but i do it because it's important to my family and i also like to see them and to see them all at once it takes me back to my childhood and to the big family meetings at my grandparents restaurants and to sitting together and Taking a look at old photos and listening to the stories that my grandparents tell about those people on those photos and making jokes about certain proper names in my village or joking about our dialect, like it makes me feel at home when I'm there with my family. But then I've left the Austrian village I was born in at 18 and I never came back there. I also have never felt homesick, I guess because I never fit in here. I really wanted to leave when I was a kid and I did everything to make this possible. I guess I wanted to travel and to meet people with similar interests than me. And I have to say I had a lot of luck. I met a lot of wonderful people everywhere I went. (laughs) Those people made me feel at home, I guess. What you mentioned before, that word we use in German, if I understand you correctly, it's Heimat. It's like a term difficult to translate. I guess it has a social but also spatial connotation, referring to the area you were born like, like in homeland or like to a certain culture. Strictly my cultural Heimat would be Upper Austria, my small village. However, I had a lot of places where I felt at home, like in that English Spanish sense of feeling at home. I felt a lot at home in Barcelona, where I have lived for so many years. I also felt at home in places I haven't lived for such a long time, in the community in Bolivia or in London. It's not so much about relating to certain geographic area, but more about the people. I want to be with the people I love and flow with. And I don't want to have to pretend anything I think I feel at home when I feel respected and appreciated, when I can come by and ring someone's doorbell without having to send a WhatsApp message beforehand and and, I don't know, in Barcelona I would go out of the house in the morning and then the lady from the vegetable shop in front would say hi to me and I start (laughs) saying hi to people obsessively now in Berlin to get this feeling. And then I think another very important factor for me is language. Language makes me feel at home a lot. I think in Spanish, I feel and speak differently than I do in German and English. And being able to understand the idiosyncrasy of a place and of a certain group of people can make you feel at home, especially if you're able to apply and use those different ways of communication. Maybe one last thing to add. Like this summer, I read a wonderful book by a German author, Daniel Schreiber, and it's actually called Zuhause, like at home. It was recommended to me by my friend Doro, and Daniel Schreiber cites, among a lot of other references, Nicolas Borio, who wrote this book about the Radikant, and I feel very connected to that idea. And you also mentioned that our homelessness <laughs> before, like the precarious moving around so in that sense as he thinks that to be radicant means to set one's roots in motion i think that's a very interesting metaphor i can relate to kind of grow horizontally and not only deep down like the roots keep on growing extending and are flexible and you have that wanderer as a figure in the center Coming back to language, I grew up speaking a dialect. It's not a very strong dialect, but it is. I learned German in school and then obviously I read a lot in German, professional conversations and then you have to find a job or you go to a city and then you have to speak high German, like standard German, as they call it. But since I moved away from Austria at 18 and then I started speaking Spanish, I think it's a language where I developed my emotional language, also most of my friendships developed in Spanish and also my love relationships, most of them developed in Spanish, so it did a lot to me. Obviously, German is my first language and I probably know how to use it correctly grammatically and how to think in it and how to write in it. but. I guess it's easier to express myself in Spanish in social situations and, and then English is kind of crossing everything because it became such a lingua franca. You just needed to survive and to have this, your joker to be able to communicate with everyone around and new people you get to know. And yeah, especially in Berlin, everyone speaks English anyway, like even more than German, funnily enough. <laughs> I just went back home for Christmas and I would talk to my grandmother and she uses words I don't use anymore. I understand her, obviously, and I understand the dialect. And I like those words. They make me feel related to her, but I don't use them because I don't have anyone anymore to use them with. Because in my daily life, people in the north of Germany wouldn't understand me (laughs) using those words. Having been raised in a small village in a rural part of Austria obviously had a strong influence on in me. For a long time I tried to escape it. I read a lot and I wanted to know everything I could not experience back at home in a way. And then I decided to leave as early as possible. And coming from a village, sometimes I felt it like being a disadvantage because you would get those looks, you know, like, ah, you speak a dialect, you're from the countryside you're not cultivated those looks from people in the city but then i think those feelings quickly changed for me because then i moved to barcelona and then i learned about catalan culture and they are so proud of their language and they care so much for it so i also changed or I learned how to appreciate my dialect and my own culture that was a very valuable experience and then obviously having lived in a rural area and also having lived in big cities, I have both perspectives and I kind of have the privilege to be able to compare those kind of perspectives. And then I guess I'm also more aware of romanticizing country life as it might happen now a little, like so many people wanting to move to the countryside and getting the real food and the real stuff. And as you said before, You didn't like if i remember correctly like the milk coming directly from the cow i had to go with the milk bottles like to my neighbor and get fresh milk every day and then actually i also didn't like it as a kid it's very fatty and i actually doubt that anyone would drink this today because people want to have organic oat milk you know like (laughs) cow milk is not in anymore (laughs) exactly you also had to clean the eggs Obviously, everything you got. I wouldn't romanticize country life because I know it's also pretty hard to live in a small place, not only in terms of possible physically hard work you have to do, but for me it was very hard in terms of personal and social life. I would say forget about your specific interests, like you can't go to art openings. You don't have your queer reading group, no experimental crowd rock music sessions. If you want to have those, you have to organize them yourself. Mm -hmm. But I guess you have to probably face a lot of bad-mouthed gossip by more conservative neighbors. (laughs) There's no free or anonymous city life in the countryside. However, each time I go back to visit my family or to visit friends who live in the countryside, I enjoy it a lot. You've got a lot of time all of a sudden. It calms me down. People seem to be quite real. There are so many things that are in big or that become important in big cities, but you don't need them in the countryside. They don't exist and they have no, no function in a way. And then you don't need the new stuff or the flat white uh, from the coffee shop or whatever, you just take the local food and there's a kind of down-to-earthness that it's difficult to find it in the big cities. I don't want to generalize though, but uh, yeah, usually I think it's also pretty easy to recognize people who grew up in the countryside by exactly this trait and and probably being very pragmatic and hands-on about some problem solving or even major life issues. I think in that sense I learned a lot from my mother and grandmother. It's interesting comparing curating and designing in terms of obsessions or being educated as a designer obviously means to relate to the world from a design point of view and in terms of graphic design I think it's easy to become obsessed with details. I can be quite perfectionist and nitpicky about things and in terms of work it helps because you, you have to engage with details in text or image editing. You also have a different uh, view in the city, I think. I'm pretty fixated on everything with typography. Like I can't keep my eyes off signage, books, packaging, advertising. I see the typography everywhere and I see if it's well done or not so well done. (laughs) And also... I would um, pay attention to certain color combinations or often I would walk somewhere and then I would frame the scenes might be a nice photograph can be ob- obsessive and it's hard to put it off and to get a rest from this but it's also kind of enriching it's like a way of uh, living that that life and in terms of design it makes you also foster a certain environment you want to have a environment you feel comfortable in and then it relates a lot to aesthetics and I guess that's also a big prejudice against designers or that there is a prejudice about designers you might want to have a pretty chair pretty shoes you need a specific kind of toothbrush or lampshades like (laughs) pay a lot of attention to the seemingly unimportant details What you said about artists maybe caring so much for their exhibitions, but then living in really messy places or so, I agree. I also think it probably depends on the type of person. It's not something you can generalize. And I think the messiness is also about aesthetics in the end, because I think probably when I started design and I was aspiring to become part of that design world or art world and then but I didn't have the money to have all those sign objects or to buy so fashionable clothes. You know, you would go get some second-hand stuff and whatever. But you aspire to this. Sp- now, I think I became more critical of it. And also, I think I get easily bored by the pretty, the perfect and the clean. I appreciate more if I see something relating to a certain context that makes sense in that place and not so much the general design classics. So if you move a lot and you don't have that flat or house, you would live in all your life long. It also it doesn't make a lot of sense to accumulate a lot of pretty things because then it's also difficult to get rid of them. And then, you know, you would choose to keep some stuff, some books, some records, and then improvise wherever you get to. You You make a bed, a table, and then it's also kind of easy to deconstruct it again and move somewhere else (laughs) or give it away or give it to friends yeah when i was younger probably i had that feeling that i have to have those things around me to feel at home but it's not really about that also with less things you worry about less stuff and then you have more headspace in a way which is also big luxury i'm not coming back to those design stereotypes i'm also not talking about that you know that you only wear black, and then you own nothing. Then a notebook and your phone, where everything <laughs> is stored. In a way, it's not about being normcore like Steve Jobs or aspiring being a Buddhist or something else. It, it comes out of a necessity or of your way of living. With no fixed home or place, there's no. It doesn't make sense to accumulate any objects or. It doesn't even make sense to collect or archive things, which is would be a classic for designer. You know, you have to have an archive and you have to have the books and you have to keep the things that you are making and the, those also taking space. So I think it brings us also to another topic, like with those types of new homelessness, it makes a lot more sense to think things collectively and to kind of share archives and libraries. Not just keeping the resources to yourself in a way. On working collectively versus working with collectives. It was not so long ago that I started to consciously make this difference, and I think it helped me in my practice. Working collectively has been a great goal for me ever since I wrote my MA thesis on critical practice and in collective and participative work. And also, I guess, in my generation, collectives have been idealized a great deal. And I think I was taught by designers who were very proud of their names. And I made an internship with a designer, author with a big name, and who was also often insisting that other designers would copy him. And I think I learned a great deal, but I never wanted to work this way. By designing collectively, I wanted to overcome that designer author thing. The having to have a name necessity, a name that everyone could follow. That to create the style of that designer, I felt way more comfortable being part of a group without having a or my name in the center. I wanted the design to speak for itself, not the name behind it. In that sense, I also became very influenced by um, political protests and social movements. I presenced and also participated in, especially the 15M movement in Spain in 2011. Back then, those collective gatherings actually gave the impression, at least for a moment, that citizens actually have the power to change certain things they are not content with. And that energy also motivated me and a lot of people around me to join collectives and start doing things together. Obviously, forming part of a collective is a big challenge. It gives you a lot, you receive a lot of input, of opinions, of social relations, of friendships and care. However, you also have to, to give a lot. A lot of care work, a lot of time, a lot of listening and patience uh, to attend all the assemblies and discuss everything to the least in order to achieve a certain kind of consensus. And you have to be able to position yourself and defend your own positions. I guess working or being in a collective is not for everyone and not for every project or situation. Everyone has to make that experience in order to choose if a full-time collective life makes sense or maybe it's more about irregular meetings or maybe you like to work on your own. Um, uh, Also, I would say it makes a big difference if you depend economically on a collective structure or if you form part of a collective that meets irregularly and you debate and create but don't have to pay your rent through that outcome. (laughs) There are different intensities to be chosen from. As you said before, collectives are not automatically good. There is, if I understand you correctly, this uh, ideal of the collective as opposed to the neoliberal world that uh, wants us to be more individualistic and self-centered and where the collective is used as a strategy of self-promotion. There might be people who use collectives in a very pragmatic and business-like way and they need them to get inspired, to have things done they cannot do themselves, to have people who can fill in for them if they don't have time and so on. However, I think collectives are very fragile organisms with a balance that has to be kept and and cared for. And there has to be a horizontal structure and horizontal decision-making processes, enough time to to ask and talk about the well-being and feelings of everyone involved. I guess it's also important to to have clear roles and renegotiate those roles. If you don't feel comfortable with them anymore, members have to feel respected. Also because you often spend just a lot of time together. You eat together, you travel together. It can be very tense. It can be like a family. And I think uh, in some of the collectives, I had the lack of forming part of a group. I actually consider... My political family and they shared so much with me and as you were talking about the personal and the political in that sense i'm very happy to be able to recognize what a group can do for one and what what kind of feelings it can move and what does that to your professional life it's about making those experiences working collectively and working with collectives maybe to explain a little more of the difference it kind of came natural that from forming part of several collectives I left some of them and gradually passed on to working with collectives because I it's an interesting form of working and I think from a design point of view it helps because then your role is very clear you're then the designer of that collective or you work with them and you get commissioned a project and form part of the group and then you might uh, be able to initiate that project with the group and it's still very complex to work with collectives and you have to listen to a lot of different voices and it's quite common that you start working with one spokesperson then the team keeps changing during the work process and which means that you never can respond with your design to the proposal of just one person or the conversation you had. There has to be a collective decision-making process with the whole group. And as a designer, you have to be really sure about what you're doing. This is usually an enriching process, but also challenging since the accorded principles you base the design on can shift all the time. So you have to be able to negotiate them in order to produce one coherent design in the end. And I think that also brings me back to the topic of authorship you just mentioned. There is some authorship in it, but I'm happy to share it with the whole group who is involved in discussing with me the concept or the project. And I don't think it's so much about the authorship, at least for me. If you probably have that approach to life, to living collectively, you can apply it to a lot of things, also to the way you live. You might want to share a big house with many people and organize everything you do collectively. I think it depends a lot on on you personally and also on your moment in life. If you're capable of this and if you have that energy to put in, maybe sometimes it just comes to you. yeah of course, I can give an example of such a collective experience like in Barcelona, I used to work with a group of philosophers, historians, thinkers, <laughs> workers, musicians actually officially we did not define ourselves as a collective because we don't we would agree on on a certain basis political basis, but there was no need to Agree on everything 100%, so that give a lot of freedom to so certain parts of the group. Could do one thing, others might not agree with fully, but they would still give some input or some critique, and so you wouldn't be held up by usual collective dynamics where you have to find like consensus and be and agree on stuff 100%. So this was actually an amazing experience. In the beginning, I felt. As a designer, I felt like a big outsider there. <laughs> I also felt they kind of needed uh, what I could give to them to visualize their ideas. It was a very um, a very productive exchange, I would say. And over the years, we made a lot of A4 sheets, which we would give out and also publish on the internet. It came out of political activism, or it still is, I guess, but I think what made such a big difference for me with that project is like the warmth of the group our regular meetings we would meet for dinner once a month and discuss certain topics and discuss our gut feelings and how they relate to certain political issues to feeling unwell and kind of being able to admit feeling unwell and making this the topic of her dinner (laughs) was actually a very special experience. The ones who took care most of the time were the hosts who, who were having us, who were opening their houses and organizing the dinner. And it also felt very special to have so generous hosts and always to have someone opening their houses, because not everyone had a big enough house to host, like, 15 of us. You ask about graphic designers being involved in a project from the beginning on, and Also, you say that it might not be so practical in terms of time and work. Also, you say that sometimes it's not clear when a project starts. You don't know where it begins exactly. You're right in terms of the effort. It takes a lot of time and effort. It's a lot more meetings and a lot of participation in stages of projects where there is still no clear objective and you might feel losing your time as a designer. Still, though, I prefer to be involved in projects From the very beginning on, no matter if it's a book, a website or an exhibition or whatever project, I agree on that you can't really say where it begins. It has occurred to me that I was present at the very moment where an idea came up and you were just having a beer with someone at the same desk and then you were talking about this and then some months later there was this project and then kind of they would come back to you and commission you with that project because you have been there in that moment where the idea came up. That kind of situation brought me to think about this, what the forming part of it from the beginning on. Obviously, sometimes you just come in a little bit later and the project initiators already have formulated some ideas and so that doesn't matter so much. I was talking more about that I don't like to be called in last minute and then just fulfill a design service responding to some written brief, almost like executing a a command. In that sense, I also avoid pitching for competitions where there is no chance to have an actual conversation about the project before you work on a concept. For me, it's a lot easier to come up with a visual concept if I had the chance to, to listen to the people who do the project, to have a conversation with them, to understand their motives, their objectives. And I also like to brainstorm together with them and create the concept or their ideas for the project. It's like out of that conversation, it's a lot easier then to respond to the possible needs of that project. I think such a collaborative process usually has a positive influence on the design. And it's hard to say how specifically, because I think that's different in every project. I think it's also about being in touch with people. It's about social relations. And I think also the laughing and the joking are important to the design process. And obviously there are also misunderstandings and there might be cultural differences, but I think... Problem solving usually unites more than it divides the group. I think personally the projects I'm most satisfied with are often the projects I became involved in very closely from the beginning on. I guess there's also some, a certain kind of danger with becoming too friendly because you also have to keep a critical position and reflect what's actually good for the project and not getting overwhelmed by too much friendliness or closeness this is essential for my way of working. And also before the pandemic, it was a good way to get a break from the computer (laughs) to do a lot of meetings. To start with talking about the business and the client world, I soon noticed that I did not want to form part of it. Obviously, when I finished my study, I worked for other people in a few studios to get some experience and I was in touch with that world, but I didn't feel very comfortable in it. And I decided that I don't want to use the word client anymore. I prefer to work with people and, and projects. And I also don't feel like running a business. I see graphic design more like a craft in combination with coming up with a concept or an idea first, and I'm not really interested in selling storytelling or visual narratives or brand strategies or whatever new term comes up like in that business design world. What you said that you and your own work work with people in projects you're interested in and you wouldn't be able to work with other projects and that question if that now is a luxury or not and maybe you can't afford it because you have to pay your rent and I think obviously you have to start somewhere. I have worked as a waitress for many years and I also worked in some design studios to get some experience and there I had to work on projects I didn't like so much but then that was also the reason why I quit those jobs (laughs) and then I think you have to go through a lot of different experiences to figure out what you actually want and first of all you have to be interested in the content you work with and then how do you get there I mean I would say it's difficult to communicate something well if you don't believe or understand its message so obviously it has to be something you're interested in you would read yourself something That might make change or give a politically motivated message. It can also be interesting engaging closely with the work of an artist or a scientist or collective and editing and choosing contents for them, with them, participating in their way of working. There are many ways how you can get close to interesting contents. Most of the time you do not start with choosing directly a certain type of content. You might go to places so that offer certain content. It's like lectures, exhibitions, uh, concerts, openings, bookshops, gatherings, or assemblies, or demonstrations, or whatever you're interested in. In real life, or at least in my life, in that sense the people come first. I get to know someone, maybe by chance, maybe because friends introduce me, and then might hang out with them or meet them already in a professional setting in a workshop or so and then you would go and have a coffee or beer and you can become friends or you have some conversations and they might remember you the next time they need a graphic designer and then then you get a call. And then I think you still have to choose if you want to do this project or not and obviously it also depends if you need that money in that moment. But I think it's super important to choose very wisely who you work for or with. It does sound like luxury, but it really is not so much. It is essential in order to guarantee a good project outcome. It is not easy, obviously, to know beforehand how people or how project will turn out, but you kind of learn how to listen to your gut feelings in terms of evaluating people. And I also have chosen wrongly a lot of times Like in the end, you should just work for and with people you can constructively communicate and flow with and who respect and appreciate you. And I think your work experience in general has to be pleasant and not only the actual design outcome. It's a difficult question. Like what kind of projects i like to be part of I think you also asked me what kind of reasons make me interested in, in a project. And it's difficult to say because sometimes the projects as the people kind of come to you. Obviously, there has to be something that touches me or some kind of content I can personally relate to. Sometimes it also happens that I don't know the people so much. But I kind of think, oh, that's an interesting thing to do. And then you actually learn to know the people you get to know the people during the process and also engage with the topic a lot more during the process because sometimes in the beginning of a project you actually don't know so much about it so there's always also risk that in the end someone comes to you and says ah yeah we want to do magazine with you and then in the end it turns out okay they were telling me this and that but then you actually don't like so much the content of that magazine and then you also have to deal with it and then it still might be a great person and you can enjoy the process but you're actually not so sure about the actual outcome. I think there are so many different things that could happen in that sense. I'm not quite sure if I can answer that question like generally. there's a lot of uh, gut feeling involved in terms of who I feel comfortable working with or not, just as we talked about before. And then in terms of content, I think I learned about doing a little more research about the actual content that will be published or about what the people did before in order to be able to evaluate a little bit more about how the new project could turn out because you never know beforehand what will happen during the process or so sometimes the book is already written when it gets to you but sometimes you might agree to a project and then the content is coming there over time you just don't know especially with websites for example you would design a website guessing some future contents but then people would upload stuff you would never have imagined so it's really difficult to, to answer or to preview what's going to happen. Talking about archives, as you said, you're getting bored of them because everyone talks about archives and archiving and <laughs> there have been so many archives around us in the last years and i'm not sure how i got into working with archives i think they also came to me somehow and 10 years ago when i was working a lot in vienna and doing some exhibitions people wanted to open up their archives or maybe uh, you would do an archive in a book form. The archives I engaged with lately, like the Beller Archive in Hamburg, is an archive about the gentrification of the east of Hamburg and the cultural activities that are going on there next to the big investments, investors. Probably is one example I was involved in from the very beginning on. That idea just came up sitting together and then let's do that archive because it might be needed there because someone has to document everything that's happening before the big investors come and start building it was a lot about figuring out the position for this archive so there's no neutral way of archiving and I think then there it gets really interesting to think about how to archive what to archive who runs this archive can archives be run collectively, like in their case. Another example for working with an archive would be Sistema Erafilea, an archive for artist publications from the Basque context. I joined or was asked also very much in the beginning of the project. It's also a great example for very nice, very productive collective teamwork like in terms of where design should be present or not. I can think of a lot of situations where design should not be so present. But I mean, that also depends on how you define design and what kind of design you like personally or even recognize as such. Actually, everything is designed. However, talking about the city and the countryside, I mean, if you go somewhere remote, and then you might find some vernacular design, some autochinous way of labelling bottles of road or shop signage. Not everything has to be set in Helvetica Swiss style or or correspond to the latest design hype. Personally I think it is far more interesting to find somewhere where the international style isn't taken for granted and there is so much over design as well. When I say vernacular design I don't want to nostalgically look back and conserve the past. Rather let every place have its own way of designing. I mean, if you go somewhere in Spain to a small village and buy some honey, some jam from a local store, chances are high that the labels might be handwritten. There's no need for a professional designer, and yet they are designed and they might be really pretty, actually. There's some great ecological winery in Catalonia and they do their wine labeling with probably with Word and Times New Roman. And I think when I first drank that wine, I wrote them an email congratulating them for their great labels. (laughs) No design is also design. I think it makes sense what you're saying, that you like something that is very... um, Proper to Galicia and could be seen, recognized as ugly by other people, but you actually like it for its quirkiness. I mean, that it might be a reaction to, to globalization in that sense. Already all the big European city centers uh, look the same the same chains, the same coffee shops, the same shops means the same brands, the same typography everywhere. And it hardly makes any difference if you're in London or Berlin in that sense it becomes boring so then if you go somewhere and you notice that something's not well done you pay more attention to it and then you can recognize it or appreciate that kind of quirkiness those kind of designs can have a lot of charm. It's a bit like you're importing designs from other places, like you import Danish coffee shops to Spanish cities or some London style or some style from Amsterdam or wherever. And then those design frames become empty because they don't make sense in those other places. It looks fake in a way. It brings me back to the other question you asked in the beginning, what's... The function of design, or what kind of potential I'm interested in regarding design. Design is a communication tool, and the potential of design that most interests me is in how to respond sustainably and responsibly to, to a commission. How to make something that you really like, content wise and aesthetically, and at the same time speaks for itself, something that has been made out of a certain context, responding to conversations with certain people, something you can see was made at a certain place, something that satisfies a certain need, something that works for and with the audience, something then that can exist for itself, not adapting it to the current design canon, but also not necessarily operating completely outside of it. Yeah, I don't know if I explained myself, but I see a lot of relation to that, what you just said before about those imported designs and about that big difference of being able to create a proper design for each uh, place. I understand what you're observing. Don't think if I necessarily agree on it. I think uh, right now we can use like all the styles at once. Like we all know about art history and design history, and then people would just use 50s design for something or 80s design for something else because they learned this would communicate this or that. It's also like putting a certain frame on something without actually thinking of a concept that comes out of the project. It's very interesting that you mention what curating and designing would have in common that for you it's also about people, about that you meet the artist in bars, that you might not feel attracted by the curating scene, but that you feel like a connecting space or in between position. Since you asked me about the graphic design scene, it's very hard for me to answer this because I've never felt part of graphic design or, or the design scene, no matter what place, really. I would go to certain events. I would get to know other designers i would attend like talks or exhibitions i was interested in i did not engage so much in the design scene because i get easily bored when things become too self-referential but in that sense as you say design is like a great way of connecting to all other areas of interest and as you say graphic design is needed everywhere i have always had different circles of friends I had been connected to so it kind of came natural to be in touch with the scenes of the people I work with like artists or architects or writers or researchers or activists and so on and being in touch with people who generate content I'm interested in and, and working with them is a great way of supporting their issues and projects. This also brings me to a point I have always reacted quite reluctant to. Like people expect you to specialize and decide on one thing you should do and you have to put yourself in a box in order to be able to sell what you do. I never wanted to form part of just one thing. You know I can say that I love making books but I'm not sure if I would define myself as an editorial designer. I think I don't care so much about specializing in some sort of design. I I like to engage with a project and see what is needed and then decide what I can give to it from my perspective or my way of doing. For example, I've never felt that I'm great in doing corporate identities. I was never interested in that, but in the end I ended up doing quite some rather fluid identities for different smaller projects and I enjoyed The process is quite a lot. When you say that graphic design is very omnipresent today, also in some sense it has become more ephemeral. Like the good old poster you would keep and hang up in your room gave way to that flood of digital images that are published on social networks. And you're right, I don't have social networks, but I do participate in them. Indirectly, because I, I do make images for social networks for the projects I work with, so I do know how they work and I respect them for the functions they offer. I think from a design point of view, you put in a lot of effort into social networks, even more than to a traditional poster because you have to adapt them to all kind of different formats corresponding to each of the <laughs> social networks and applications and so people become image holders through their social media and those images disappear very quickly and give way to newer posts. That one great poster for that amazing concert you would hang up is hardly remembered nowadays. As you say, there has been a lot, a big change and I think the younger generation, they know a great deal about design and about self-representation and they know how to use social media very well, they don't need someone else to design images for them. Not that all traditional graphic designer you were talking about before. <laughs> if you compare it to photography and think that today everyone has access to a good camera either on their phones or getting a digital camera and you're kind of a photographer and everyone can be a designer to some extent in that sense. So therefore, the role of the designer has already changed a lot. And ideally, or at least for me, it's about the actual idea, the concept that matters and not so much the formal aspects anymore, because everyone can use those tools that were reserved for the designer in former times. You also mentioned that there is a certain nostalgia for paper in the art world or in the design world. I guess I also love working with paper. However, I'm not so sure if I have a nostalgic point of view. I try to think more practical about it. For every project, there is the right medium to do it. And for some contents, it does not make sense to be printed. They have to grow in time. They should be accessed by a great audience. So maybe it is better to think of a digital format and for a lot of other stuff paper still makes sense also if you want to make books there has to be a lot of money to actually covering the costs for making them like translations the editing the designing the printing and so on books and publications they won't disappear so quickly they still work very well and they have a certain function and we all need a break from all the screen reading (laughs) There is also the economic factor. I'm aware of that not everyone can actually afford to keep buying books. So in that sense, it's actually a big advantage to have nowadays access to digital and to printed formats. It's about the combination of both that makes things work better a lot. The big question, why I don't have social media. (laughs) I'm not sure. It's just like a personal decision. I'm sometimes on it because I have to know how it works uh, or I want to get informed about certain events. But I probably just feel part of another generation. As you said before, I was born like pre-internet or at least when the internet still was a military thing. (laughs) I don't think I want to invest so much time in self-representing me I do not feel comfortable with putting images of my life online uh, obviously I obviously know I could use it for other stuff I could publish pictures of my work or of stuff that happens to me other pictures that are not related directly to me of course I tried at some points in my life but um, I don't know it's just not for me and maybe I'm afraid of getting addicted to it or something if i really do it like in a good way i just have the feeling i have so many other things to do or i prefer to do that i don't want to be there so much i don't want to judge anyone who is there you know it's just it's more like a personal decision i think it's like something that actually is very overwhelming for me is the velocity of images and contents and You get so much information in such little time that I feel overwhelmed and then I'm afraid of actually forgetting about things I care about remembering and knowing. Maybe that sounds weird. I also, I always have to think back about that old neighbor I had when I was a child and she was probably already like over 90 years old and then I would go and get the milk from her and she would sit at that bank, and she would cite poems to me she learned at primary school. She only attended primary school and then was a farmer woman, but she remembered those poems all her life long, you know? I don't remember anything from primary school, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I also don't want to sound nostalgic, but it's just something that makes me think. It's something I have to... I want to be careful about how much I want to actually give to my head or my brain. (laughs) I'm not sure if I can digest everything. Regarding the question about aesthetics. I really had to laugh <laughs> that you remember that thing I said that the books I'm interested in are the ones with diverse design. I'm saying this and is still like this, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I have always read a lot of books about politics, social issues, or philosophy, or sociology or anthropology, or feminism or queer theory, but also literary novels, of course. And those are just the books that most inspire me however like most of those covers are just terrible it depends a bit from on the country you can find some nicely designed vintage classics and there are also some great exceptions like sur or merve in germany they have just a great proper design line and they also survive quite well in time but uh, in general like theory or academic books do not seem to be designed to give pleasure especially inside <laughs> they use really boring or inadequate typography and or typesetting and they are difficult to read sometimes and also novels they usually designed to be liked by the great masses so whatever that means actually and whoever that decides it's somewhat unclear to me uh, i just know that they have to be practical like they have to have that matte finish so they won't get dirty easily and other characteristics. Before you ask me the question, I wouldn't answer so well. What kind of scene I would like to engage with or design for. Maybe I would love to do this, you know, to get the chance to redesign some of my favorite theory books. Maybe I just should do this. (laughs) I would like to design books that you actually go back and open them again and again to look up references or certain passages, uh, like, I don't know, books by... Kathy Ecker or Elin Miles or Ingeborg Bachmann or Bell Hooks or Sarah Sulman or, uh, I don't know, Derek Charman. I'm not quite sure if I have a favorite topography. I use a lot of non-serif typefaces, but on the other hand, I like to decide what the contents call for, you know, if the content needs a serif typeface, I would use a serif typeface. Obviously make sure it's readable. I do have typefaces I won't ever use, like I never use Helvetica. (laughs) I also never use like semi-serif typefaces or some like 90s typefaces or so. But yeah, it's hard for me to exclude typeface i think there's for every project there's a certain typeface that could work it's more about how you apply it if you know how to set text correctly speaking about the craft graph of graphing design so you can actually make the text readable At the moment, I have been reading during the holidays What is Sexual Capital? by Eva Illus and Dana Kaplan. It's about uh, summarized what sexual capitalism means in our neoliberal society. Right now, I'm reading a book by Sarah Schulman called Conflict is not Abuse, which is really interesting, but I'm still just in the middle of it. <laughs> it starts with more interpersonal conflicts but then brings them to a more social and society level and it's basically about how not to misunderstand us on purpose about how we should not call the police instantly if there is a conflict and we should put more energy in in solving those conflicts and reflecting on how we form part of those conflicts before we state that something's abuse. understand like coming from the countryside you have that kind of entitlement to you have to be able to deal with your environment and with all the situations that could come up and it's normal for kids being able to go out of the house or running around or i could imagine that maybe it's not only about less fear but also about a certain kind of freedom you have in the countryside if you have a farm You might be also working class today because you almost can't live a farm life anymore. You have to have another job. But still, if you are a farmer or if you're doing your thing on the countryside or producing beer or whatever, you're kind of your own boss and not so much in an entrepreneur (laughs) sense. But there is no hierarchy above you and there's no one who tells you how many hours to work and then that kind of country life that our grandparents lived, where you just work and do your job and don't have that kind of stress we have today of delivering and writing emails, and it was a different kind of stress. A thunderstorm would come up, you have to get the stock in and the drying hay. What do you say about the emotional or apparent emotional hardness? A lot of things have changed, probably to the better, to be able to talk about your loss or your feelings or your sadness. Because I think I had a step-great-grandmother I still got to know when I was a kid. And she married my, she was the second wife to my great-grandfather and was there at the farm alone in the winter during the war. Everything was snowed in and she had to give birth on her own to a child and she lost it. This is something, a story that was told in my family, like something tragic. But also like the power you had to have back then as a woman, like being alone, pregnant, running a farm in the wintertime and like with no help, no hospital. Like, I don't know, can't, can't really compare to now and we just don't know how it was or how we would react in such extreme situations. Luckily, we, we never lived a war like our generation.
0: Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence. A research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch Recording and editing Sonia Fernandes Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Caesar. Music Stephen McAvoy. Research Team Tabea Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender Nature, HDK, FHNW, 2022.